Hi, and welcome back to another episode of Talk Talk. I'm your host, Emily Osan, and today's podcast topic is a previous TOK essay title, Do Good Explanations Have to be True? To help me explore this question, I'm joined by four fellow IB and Theory of Knowledge teachers, Mr. Bill Keisner, representing political science, Mr. Francis Wynne, representing the classics, including Latin language and Greek mythology, Mr. Jordan Westpratt, representing natural sciences, and today I'll be representing the arts. In this episode, we unpack what each of our respective disciplines seek to explain, what makes a good explanation, and what the role of truth is in each discipline. I am Mr. Keisner, and I am representing political science and uh, global politics. Hello, my name is Mr. Wynn. I will be talking in representation of the classics, perhaps considering language and linguistic learning, as well as mythology and literature, perhaps delving into human sciences in the form of psychology. I'm Mr. Westpratt, and I'll be talking about the natural sciences. Okay. And I'm Miss Osan. For today, I'm going to represent visual arts within the arts. Okay. All right, so let's kick this off. What does your discipline seek to explain? Adding on to that question, what might a good explanation look like as opposed to a not-so-good one or perhaps bad one? We seek to explain people's behavior um, in a political context, which is very difficult because we're looking at things from a global perspective all the way down to a local perspective. So you have multiple different theorists um, choosing a different way to speak about a different level of analysis. And there's different tools you use to do that uh, throughout global politics. However, at the same time, there is pressure to ascribe to a certain type of theory. So you may be a realist or a liberalist. You generally don't overlap. You choose to be one or the other. So the theory you choose will then frame your argument in a way. So you choose a theory that works for you, and then that will frame the way you look at a different uh, political event. Okay, so the theory being a form of an explanation? A predictor and an explanation. Okay. Absolutely. And there's different ways to look at it. So liberalism will look at something from the context of cooperation, whereas a realist, there's multiple different ways to look at how a realist looks at things. But it's usually human nature. And if you're a structural realist, you look at it from the state level. So if there is an interaction at a local level, realists don't really care, especially structural realists. It's irrelevant to them. It's not part of what they're looking to do. The state system will act as states do, regardless of who's in charge. So if, if Gandhi was, uh, was elected to Hitler's position in World War II, it was irrelevant that it was Gandhi or Hitler, the state would have acted the way a state does. Hmm. Doesn't matter who's in charge. Whereas a liberalist would look at how cooperation amongst groups uh, and states determines behavior of states. So what makes those good explanations? I think it has to do with timelines. So if you look at how far in advance you want to predict something is going to happen, realism is a very, uh, they say, a parsimonious theory. It explains things uh, very easily and with a very few rules, right? Liberalism tends to look a little bit further down the road. So realism is good for two states are coming together. Uh, there's a problem. What's going to happen? Liberalism, 
you expand your scope and you look at a bunch of different states and how they work together and you can then predict long-term gains. And then you have theories like structuralism, which begins to ask more TOK questions such as why are we doing what we're doing, right? So how do mind shifts happen at a political level? So I think depending on your time frame, you may have a tool that is more useful to you. So the explanations are good depending on what they're used for or the circumstance. I think you're hitting on that it has to be good for a purpose and it depends on the purpose. Exactly. I think it depends on the purpose of the individual. So while I was going through these uh, questions, I had a very difficult time coming up with answers for this in political science because you do have this balance of ascribing to a type of theory, a particular Uh theory that you like or that you ascribe to. And then that will then shape your perspective as opposed to looking at the perspective and then coming up with Ah. a, or instead of looking at a perspective, looking at a situation and then saying, this is what I think is happening. You're like, I will always look at it from this lens because this is the type of theorist I am. So the explanation isn't necessarily the theory, but it's influenced by the theory. Right. Exactly. Exactly. What does it look like in your subject or in your discipline? So I suppose um, in a study of Western classics, it can be divided into two main components. The linguistic, trying to get to grips with the ancient languages, specifically Latin and ancient Greek, uh, in a way that uh, can then reveal to us the wider dimensions of the ancient world. Because it's through the language that we can access the cultural materials. So, just so that I'm clear on what we're trying to explain, is it what the world was like in the past, or what the language means, or what is it that it's, um, what, is, what is it trying to explain? So, I suppose the language, which in and of itself needs an explanation, mm. and I was a born speaking Latin, uh, so oh. in order to, to kind of achieve, gain that knowledge, mm. We need grammar. We need certain sets of rules to be imposed upon these languages Mm -hmm. to enable us to access them and understand them in our own terms, Mm -hmm. notably by translating ancient texts into English. Mm -hmm. Uh, That is our route to further understanding of these ancient cultures. Why do we try to understand these ancient cultures? I think, ultimately, it's a matter of opinion, but... It's to do with an attempt to find something in them that speaks of something timeless, Mm. that connects us cross-culturally and throughout time as humans. Mm. There's something in the ancient world that rings true with us today, Mm. um, specifically because we are humans. Mm. And while so many things change naturally um, and evolve and are temporally and geographically and culturally specific... There are certain things, truths, if you will, that remain constant. Mm. And that's why we study the ancient world. Interesting. So on a surface level, an, a good explanation might just be about what a particular piece of language means. Mm. But then on a deeper level, perhaps it is providing an explanation as to what it means to be human. Or these deeper truths about humanity across time. I think so. And I think you have a lot of both in classics. It's quite a thankless, mundane task (laughs) is learning an ancient language, um, full as they are of complexity and nuance. Uh. But it's in that incremental game. It's in learning rather obscure and boring grammatical tables 
that the world then opens up for you and you've got like a clear plane through which to visit upon ancient minds that wrote things that could have been written yesterday in some cases. Would it provide an insight into current language as well? Perhaps providing an explanation for why our language, English language, is as it is? Very much so. Very much so. Um, philology and the study of linguistics in general um, has a, a well-systematized theory of the evolution of languages. Mm. So, for example, we know that Latin um, directly sort of gave birth to uh, what, what are known as the Romance languages. Mm-hmm. We have French, Portuguese, Italian, Spanish and Romanian, all of which share family traits, as it were, mm. with the Latin language. English as well, we, we can discern the influence of Latin at various times mm-hmm. throughout history. And yeah, so to answer your question, Mr. Sun, yes, yes, mm. language can have an explanatory purpose in that respect too. Okay. So I guess in, in that, maybe just what makes it good is its relevance, perhaps, and depends on relevance or perhaps accuracy? Mm. So I think grammar um, and the way that all languages are sort of explained, uh. um, it's important to remember that these rules govern the application of a language, but not their creation. Okay. So languages form organically right. and naturally. Mm. It's very dynamic and fluid non-static process. Spanish had a beginning, assumedly, but the lines Mm. between that and Latin, where Latin ended, is very blurry. Mm. Latin's relationship, similarly, with ancient languages that predate itself. Mm -hmm. It's a very fluid process. So grammar is often a sort of a sometimes clumsy attempt to compartmentalize and Mm. impose patterns Mm. on a system of speaking or a system of writing that are true in most instances, perhaps. <laughs> There's always exceptions. <laughs> there are so many exceptions. Um, irregular verbs, for example. Um, th- that's another reason why Latin actually became a particular focus of study. It's because, given as how we have only a certain proportion of classical texts, mm. the Latin we study has been sort of cryogenically frozen in its kind of most perfect form. Sure. It says nothing to how a Roman might have spoken to his friend while walking down the street. Sure. Um, how that looked or what that sounded like or what rules governed that, we don't really know. We only know about the classical texts written in a particular, rather short period of time. And that's what we spend our time talking about. So mm-hmm. Latin, you mean that language that spanned... Several, you know, several hundred countries, perhaps, and um, through a period of perhaps a thousand years, um, that's a that's a big beast to to try and get purchase on. So okay. that really isn't what we do either. But um, a good explanation governs general usage and can provide the learner with a sort of a roadmap to discern patterns within it. Okay. Same is true of English. Okay, so I'm guessing it's kind of going to have some similarities or perhaps complete differences to natural sciences. But in that, it seeks to explain something about the world and there are explanations about it as well. Both that would be good or bad depending on um, the circumstance, yeah? Yeah, I think so, for sure. I haven't really spoken about 
the mythology and all that malarkey. Yeah. But perhaps I could... Maybe we come back to that. Come back to that. Let's, let's move around and hear from natural science. What, um, what does your discipline seek to explain? This feels like such an easy question in science compared to the two, political science and... Oh, um, uh, maybe not. Yeah. <laughs> I think in many ways it is. The natural sciences primarily seek to describe the physical world we occupy. Yes. Yeah, so can you say that in a sentence about the classics? The human condition. <laughs> what is it? Poli- political science? Uh, I don't know. I, <laughs> it's, such a, yeah. it's such a wide-ranging uh, field in that we have theories, but we also have models, and we tend to use both almost interchangeably to explain certain things at certain levels, right? So you can use you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, or you could use... Um, uh, Galtung's triangle to predict conflict at a sub-national level, but at the same time, you can apply it at a national level. It's, it's a strange field in that you have to specialize, and within you, when you specialize, you're choosing a, spe- a specific theory that you tend to favor, the one that you like the explanation the best, so you think explains the world best to you and your personal set of beliefs or experiences, I'm guessing. Okay, hold on. I want to mm-hmm. come back to that, but I definitely need to hear from <clears throat> science. So let me, you've just said science seeks to explain the natural world. Yeah, in the natural sciences, we believe that there are discoverable laws that govern physical interactions. And we would be interested in physical action interactions from the level of subatomic particles all the way up to the structure of the human mind but not including theories of mind. That's where we start dipping into the human sciences. So the neuroscience, right at the edge of the boundary with things like psychology or neuropsychology, um, scientists generally are looking to discover laws and then describe them mathematically and then develop the theories that explain the occurrence of those laws. Uh, The sciences tend to be reductionist in this sense. We look to isolate variables and then use deduction to determine the effect of one thing on another. And we believe fundamentally in the idea of cause and effect Mm. uh, rather than correlation. Mm. So it seems to me like an explanation that's good in the science needs to be justifiable, verifiable, or else at least at the moment unfalsified. Yeah, fundamentally the natural scientists are going to rely on empiricism and this idea of testability and falsifiability. Mm-hmm. Now, that's not to say that everything we accept and explore within natural science is testable and falsifiable, mm. but certainly we aim for that, right? It's, mm. it's a, something we strive towards, something we aspire to. The good explanations in the natural sciences are very, very good at making predictions. Mm-hmm. And so when we talk about a good explanation in science, it's going to make predictions that we can rely on to a high degree of certainty. It's also going to be transferable. A good explanation for factors affecting rates of a reaction should apply equally to factors affecting all rates of reaction. Mm-hmm. And so that transferability and prediction are, are key to what we call good explanations in science. I, I think if I look at it from the perspective of the visual arts and what counts as a good explanation, I think when I look at what does the arts try to explain, it's something like similar maybe to the classics, like the human condition. Um, that's from the perspective of an artist. Uh, I want to explain my experience as a human or perhaps record something about my culture or time for future generations. Or perhaps I'm just trying to enjoy myself and make some art, okay? So in terms of explaining from an artist's perspective, it might be 
a bit of a stretch to say making art is a form of an explanation. Okay, but then the other side of that is looking at art and trying to say what does it mean and how do I know that. Interpretation is quite a good example of an explanation within the arts. So what does it mean? Whether it's the audience interpretation versus the um, artist's intention and that conflict between the two, ultimately we find this middle ground that some acknowledgement of the intention of the artist as well as the context of the work and my own personal understanding of, of the artwork itself, my experience of it, some combination of that is a good explanation of what that artwork means. Probably the best explanation doesn't discount any of those factors, but is able to simultaneously hold some kind of even conflicting or ambiguous meaning at the same time. So I think a good explanation in the arts takes into consideration all the factors that might be at, at your disposal. Do you think we could summarize quickly sort of what a good explanation might look like in your discipline? I'm gonna to go to Mr. Wynn's example of grammar, right? I thought that was great, where you're trying to compartmentalize a language that you don't know much about uh, and use this clunky system, right? And I find that to be very similar in global politics, where you have mm. uh, these power dynamics, and that's all it's about, right? It's all about these power dynamics, who has more, who has less, and who's taking advantage of another person, state, group in these relationships. It's very difficult to quantify that, and, but you do try and create these categories, right? Now, your explanation in terms of whether it's accepted or good has a lot to do with those categories we talked about before. I ascribe to realism or I ascribe to liberalism, these theories, right? If I think I'm a realist and you're a fan of liberalism, then your explanation isn't good to me, right? Mm. So it's inherently within my lens is all I care about when it comes to an explanation, right? Mm. Inherently, the other side has a very different perspective and their assumptions are what shape that lens, right? I operate on a very different set of assumptions mm. depending on what you choose. So your explanation in the wider realm of global politics is good within your lens. And it kind of doesn't exist outside that lens. It, mm. it exists as something that you could argue against, but it doesn't necessarily mean that your explanation is going to be good to others that don't ascribe to your same theory. So I just want to pick up on that, that idea mm. that you ascribe to a certain theory. Like, What would make one decide to ascribe to one versus another? One theory seems to have, provide a better explanation yeah. based on your personal experience or certain yeah. conditions that... That's what, that's what I think. I mean... I, if you're in academics, you definitely have to ascribe to one particular theory. There are realists, there are people that uh, are, believe in liberalism, there are people that uh, choose structuralism, right? They all study a different vein of it. And they can't simultaneously exist. You can't hold them no, at so the same time. A realist will have, a, a realist and a person that ascribes to liberalism will look at the same event and interpret it in two very different ways. And the realist will have arguments as to why the liberalist argument is necessarily incorrect. For example, uh, you would say, liberals would say, well, they're working together, these two countries are working together because they are, this is a mutually beneficial relationship for a long-term gain, right? Whereas a realist would say, no, it's a zero-sum game. It's very simple. 
It's a zero-sum game. Ultimately, they are helping them because it helps. They're helping another country because it helps that country immediately. Mm. That's it. So it's more about immediacy. So it is the same situation, but the interpretation is very different. Um, and it does depend on, I suppose, your personal experience. Like I lean towards liberalism um, in, in a political science theory way, right? Uh, realism, though, does make quite a bit of sense. Mm-hmm. So for me, I fluctuate okay. among all of them, right? But I'm not an academic that has to take a okay, stance so on one. I see. I, yeah, I don't see. have to make the choice. So it's good because of the lens. It fits within the lens. Right. I think your argument is, once you choose, is going to be inherently good. Like the explanation's already there for you. Mm. You just need to find the evidence that supports it. Yeah. Is that similar or different, would you say, than than science, natural sciences? I would say that for the most part, this is different from the natural sciences. There tends to be a lot of work towards consensus, empirical verification, and it tends to be relatively straightforward to determine which explanation accounts for the greatest amount of the existing data and leaves the fewest omissions. Mm -hmm. However, at the edges of scientific discovery, we see emerging theories. So competing explanations in their young stages, which have their proponents, and the debate continues as to which does a better job of accounting for the greatest amount of our collected evidence. Mm -hmm. And so in some cases, that's still happening. But the scientific community largely works together to work towards an ever-improving model for understanding the world we occupy. Mm. Mm. It is interesting that you have a model, and looking at it now and not having this conversation in this context before, I'm almost jealous. Yeah. Everyone's working together within physics, uh, bio, (laughs) chem, and they have this structure, let's say the scientific method, and then... That is the standard, whereas in political science, I feel there is no standard. There's multiple different interpretations, and they're constant uh, conflict with one another. I think that the downside to that advantage, mm. and, and I will say there are examples at the edge. I mean, light is a very good example where we have two different models for explaining the behavior of light. When we look into a mirror, we treat light as a particle that travels in straight lines and bounces the way a tennis ball or a billiard ball would bounce. That's how we explain reflection. But when we perceive color, we talk about white light traveling as a wave, and wavelengths lead to different colors. And so that wave behavior, particle theory, wave-particle duality, we contend with that. So there are places where we haven't settled on a best possible explanation, and we're willing to use more than one tool. If we go back to some of the questions about does a good explanation have to be true, at least in science in that respect, no. It has to be the best possible predictor for observations of the physical world. But where it's easy to be pleased with the way scientists tend to work together to collaborate on single models, progressing towards a single truth, it drastically limits the importance of the questions we can answer. Because in political science, you're going to tackle questions that matter to me greatly on a personal level, matter to us as a human human level, right? In the classics, if we're studying the human condition, I want those answers but with the certainty of empiricism, we lose the ability to answer important questions. So we can probably tell you to one more decimal place the force of gravity at the top of Everest, but do you care about that as much as you care about how to manage the next democratic transition? Hmm. I care about having that sort of scientific empirical certainty, but transferred to the political realm. Wouldn't Mm. that be the dream? 
with that type of stuff. I feel like I feel like political science in that the way that we're discussing it in this moment shares a lot with the art. If I widen my view a bit and I talk a little bit more about like theories for understanding literature, where you have a particular lens, like a critical theory in an understanding of a particular text. And you can look at like feminist theory or Marxist theory. You can look at the same text, same piece of information, and see it sort of differently depending on which lens you're applying. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it applies to, sounds kind of similar with political science. You're looking at the same event, just looking at it through different lenses. Maybe a difference in the arts is that I'm not sure that anyone is actually expecting you to only apply that one lens, like that lens is the right lens to have. I think that in the arts, the lenses are just another tool for expanding understanding. And really, the more lenses you can apply, the better. Yeah, the, the multiple perspectives provides more and more insight. Whereas if you just take the one, you're taking a very narrow lens. I don't think that's as useful in the arts. Perhaps in political science, it's better to have that narrow lens. I don't know. It's, it is interesting. I think we also need to talk about the explanation and what it means to each discipline, right? An explanation for you, for um, sciences, is looking forward and predicting something, right? As yeah. accurately as you can. Whereas you could make the claim in political science that's what you're doing, but what mostly happens is uh, an event takes place and then we sit around and look at it and say, well, what just happened? <laughs> how did that happen? And instead of how do we repeat the good things, we say, how do, how do we not do that again? <laughs> right? It's very rarely we see something good and say, let's repeat this. Huh. How important is truth in your discipline? Just so that we touch on the other side of the question about do good explanations have to be true, what, what is the role of truth, perhaps, in your discipline? So perhaps in study of the ancient world in general, uh-huh. um, I think mythology is a rich source of oh, yes. explanatory power. Um, on the one hand, the ancients, um, devoid of sort of technological, scientific means of imposing um, a more mechanistic, kind of realistic uh, model of the world, might uh, resort to narrative conceptions of the world. For example, the reason why we have seasons is because Proserpina, the daughter of Ceres, is kidnapped by the god of the underworld, Hades, for six months during the year. Um, Now, in one sense, that's palpable nonsense, right? We know that this is not, in fact, the reason why we have seasons. Nevertheless, this myth rings true in a certain sense. It can be used by theorists such as Malinowski to explain religious and cultural practices common to this area of the world. And from that, we can chart the sort of the cultural pollination that exists between different ancient peoples. Mm. There's a truth to it in that respect. Otherwise, um, you might consider the story of Oedipus, uh, who famously killed his father and married his mother. Now, was there a person called Oedipus who did these things? It is immaterial. But whether or not, this myth can serve to have a sort of a truth was something that psychoanalysts such as Freud believed, Mm. um, who saw mythology as representational of our unconscious experience. Mm. Jung further developed Freud's work to take mythological figures and tropes that we find within these stories as 
archetypes that exists and sort of impose a sort of a stamp on all of us, which serves as an explanation of why humans behave in certain ways or the way that they do. Similarly, it seems that there's a certain truth to mythology um, in the study of comparative mythology. Joseph Campbell, um, The Hero with a Thousand Faces, very famous book, charts the similarity of the heroic quest within various different ancient traditions. Uh, and he maps out a template by which commonalities appear consistently. For example, initially, the hero is reluctant to embark upon his quest. Subsequently, he decides to do so. He meets with various forces that are outside of his control, but with grit, resilience and ingenuity, manages to overcome and accomplish his task. He then returns and bestows favours upon those around him. This story manifests itself in various different traditions. So while someone called Hercules may not have existed, Mm. maybe there's something we can grasp at from this that helps us to form a greater understanding of the human condition, the way in which we all face adversity and struggles. So perhaps not a literal truth. We'd be missing the point. If Very we much looked so. at mythology and said, oh, these are good explanations. If you but they're literally un- not true. If you want to understand the physical world, you should definitely speak to Mr. West Pratt, not me. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but if you're interested in perhaps metaphorical truth... I'll tell you what I think. You'd be the person to speak to. Right? Okay. <laughs> I, that, that does not mean this truth will be objective. Okay. I cannot tell you the meaning of life, but I can tell you that whatever I know about that has been informed by art and literature. Mm. I think art shares a similarity with, um, with, what, with mythology in that sense. Like, we're not always concerned with the literal truth. Although, sometimes we are. There's all kinds of different visual arts. There's abstract things that don't look like anything completely unconcerned with reality or truth at all. Or perhaps maybe just the deep truth of the artist's experience at that moment, at that time, for whatever purpose serves that one human. But... Then there's also like the role of art in um, recording and sharing histories and truths about a culture, even that the artist might not be aware of themselves. I get particularly disturbed by art that is like made for propaganda, but especially when it's meant to promote some untruth of a particular culture or time, to reimagine or to promote like a government position. This is what our country looks like, even though it's completely unintouched with reality of what that country at that time actually looks like. This kind of goes away from explanations because the art itself as an explanation of, of history might be a little bit of a stretch, but um, I do think there is the role of truth isn't entirely irrelevant in art. It maybe has some connection with uh, mythology in that sense of metaphorical truth, but also connection with science in the, in the sense of Sometimes absolute literal truth. What about science? Truth and science. If you were to speak with practicing scientists, visit a lab, visit the Hadron Collider, you know, talk to people who are working on developing results for publication, then the distinction between a good prediction and a true prediction is non-existent. The practicing scientist is in pursuit of truth. I want to truthfully explain the mechanism by which X causes a change in Y. And it is very deterministic and mechanistic. 
But if you were to visit philosophers of science, they might argue that we're not necessarily truth seekers, but we're model builders. What we're seeking to do is provide the best model for understanding how the world around us operates. Again, those laws which govern the interactions of the physical universe. And that truth in the philosophy of science is going to be different from truth in the practice of being a scientist, mm -hmm. which is interesting for me. It takes me back to the idea of mythology. As we increasingly develop our ability to impact our environment through technology, we do so through a very natural science approach. It's reductionist, it's mechanistic, it's cause and effect. But it's also decontextualized from what those impacts mean. Where if you look at the classics, then explanations of the seasons, of weather patterns, they're contextualized in a mythology that adds a layer of value and consideration of what that means. If you look at indigenous communities all over the world that also have mythologies to explain which foods to eat, which foods to avoid, which times of year, habits around hygiene that are all scientifically justifiable through natural sciences, but contextualized through some sort of mythology that determines behavior. And while scientists may be able to tell us what will happen if, we don't do a very good job of asking ourselves what ought to happen or how ought we to behave. Mm. And so that's where we rely on the human sciences, the arts, mm. the classics. I think truth and its relevance in political science I find is weird because I would say there isn't a truth, right? I would say that since there is a power dynamic and people are competing to competing for influence, whether it be states or individuals, I think truth is something in political science that is fabricated. If you reach a threshold of belief amongst a certain amount of people, you can begin fabricating a truth, right? In terms of in terms of propaganda posters, right? Yeah. In terms of ideology, uh, you know, post-Soviet Union, that truth of communism died, right? But then you have greater sway globally, and democracy tends to push forward, right? And is being challenged more now, right? So these truths that we have are always in competition, right? So the more power you have, the greater your ability to, I don't want to say create a truth, but reinforce perhaps the truths you want to be reinforced. You can That's frightening. That's terrifying, that mm -hmm. idea that the truth can be malleable like that, like it's just reinforcing the whatever it is that you want it to be. Does the political theorist commonly not presume that there is a best model or paradigm within which mm. human society to be governed that would result in the best type of society? Do we not strive for a kind of an ideal, or is that missing the point? Well, I think the ideal would be different depending on your, uh, yeah, on, on what you're trying to do, whatever your goals are. If you look at it from how you organize your state, you, we have religious states, Saudi Arabia that has a uh, holy book as their legal system, right? We have socially uh, democratic states in Europe, we have uh, authoritarian rule, you know, we have uh, kingdoms that kind of overlap if you look at North Korea. So each of these are different systems and they all work. And they're all creating a truth of their own within their, mm. within their borders. Um, I think the one truth, that's a good point, the one truth that we all agree upon globally are states. That's it. Yeah. It's how the system is defined. Uh, you know, 150 years ago, you didn't need a passport. States didn't really exist. Mm. Um, however, now, it is the reality. It is the truth we live. There has to be a good reason for that. You wouldn't just arbitrarily ascribe a meaning to an artwork. It has to be somehow based in something. There has to be some basis for that interpretation, right? 
Same, I think, probably across all. You can't just arbitrarily come up with the thing that you want to call true and have it be that. There has to be a good reason for that. Is it possible then that in the political sciences that consensus has a higher impact on truth than, say, in the natural sciences? And then The natural sciences are famous for saying science doesn't care if you believe in it or not, right? The, the laws of gravity don't care if you believe in them. You don't have the option of, of ignoring them. But if, as a community of knowers, we develop a consensus around how we think we'll behave socially, what constitutes respectful behavior, eye contact versus no eye contact, handshaking versus hugging. You know, these are things that we construct as a group of knowers. Mm. Perhaps in the political sciences, more than natural sciences, we can say that consensus has a, an impact on what we call truth. I like that. It feels like we're talking about all these different kinds of truth. Whereas if we think about like false explanations, that's the flip side of the coin, but a false explanation within visual arts that had no basis whatsoever, no bearing on the work itself, and didn't prove to have any kind of impact on understanding the artwork in any further depth. False in the sense that it was even misleading. And I feel like that's where I'm, that's what frightens me about what you said with the political science, is that how do we then know that those different lenses or theories or explanations, I feel like I might be blurring that a bit, how do we know then that they're not false? I don't think we do. Again, I think it has to do with consensus. I think that's a great point. If we look at uh, protests on Capitol Hill in the U.S., you have a group of people that believe in a certain set of values, right, and they think that is their truth. However, a majority of us do not. We do not believe it, right? But that Mm -hmm. could easily flip where that could be a truth. And it, I think it does depend on the amount of people you have believing in that truth. Not too dissimilar from a religion, right? Yeah. See, that's what frightens me, is that I think that particular example, the, the, the protests slash riot, um, depending on mm-hmm. which perspectives you take, I don't think it's many of us, most of us. I think it's like, at least in the US, it's quite divided about what the truth was there. And then you have two different political leaders trying to recreate the truth from a different lens. And certainly there's one of them, either one entire perspective or bits and pieces of both of the perspectives has some falsity in it. If I can take the the example of mythology and I can acknowledge that that is a metaphorical truth, and I'm not seeking to call that a reality, literal truth, Like, I know that Oedipus perhaps didn't even exist. I can still value that and draw meaning from that and purpose. And I'm not going to confuse myself by, like, now practicing outdated rituals for maintaining those truths that are no longer true. They're false. In that example with the Capitol Hill, there's, there's, it's not a metaphor. Both sides are calling it literal truth. It's a fact or fiction. Something in there is fact or fiction. And something in there is dangerous if, if we're letting that go by. So that's where perhaps an explanation must be true in order to be good. If it's not, that could be quite dangerous. Yeah, but again, how does each discipline determine what yeah. is true, right? 
if we had another two or three hours, we might be able to get to the bottom of this and have a pretty strong essay written between the four of us. <laughs> <laughs> I'd, l- I'd really like to think so. <laughs> yeah. what, what, what you say, though, there at the end there about um, conviction and ideology and mm. these kind of conflating truths, mm. maybe that does speak to sort of the human condition. If nothing else, we are desperate to have a truth. Mm. We do seem to yearn for that in some way. And that's why the conviction is so strong. We mm. find it very difficult as human beings, um, particularly re- with regards to ideology and belief, to be detached. Mm. All right, well, let's, let's wrap up, you guys. Thank you so much for your time. Mm. I really appreciate you taking a lunch and talking, talk with me. I, I love it. Thank you, guys. You're more than welcome. <laughs> Thank you for listening today. I feel like we just barely got started with the discussion. Three things that stand out to me after this conversation. First, I was really struck by Mr. Wynne's example of explanations in Greek mythology that he argues are good and metaphorically true, but not literally true. I like this idea of different layers and kinds of truth. Second, Mr. Westpratt's distinction of the role of truth in natural science, that truth and philosophy of science is different than the practice of science. For a practicing scientist, there's no distinction between a good explanation and a true explanation. They're one and the same. Whereas philosophers of science may not necessarily be truth seekers, but more model builders. Third, I was deeply disturbed by the idea that truth may be irrelevant in political science. However, upon reflection, I think this is very much because of our overly liberal use of the word truth as a word to describe one's understanding of reality in this discussion. I do still think there is room for further exploration of the role of truth, perhaps especially as it comes to the description of facts and how this then translates into interpretations in different political lenses. Certainly, there is a danger in accepting anyone's perspective as subjective truth, especially in today's political climate. Finally, I'm still left wondering about the relationship of truth to the goodness of an explanation and how that might differ depending on the audience of the explanation. Who is the explanation for? What is its purpose? And does that determine what makes it good rather than its truth quality? There's still much to be considered here. A title like this one seems so simple, and yet we realize the complexity once we start to unpack it. No matter if you're a TOK student, teacher, or knowledge enthusiast, I hope that our discussion today got you thinking about the relationship of good explanations and truth in your areas of interest or expertise. Tune in again for the next episode of Talk Talk.